Welcome to the Ecodharma audio series, Buddhist Reflections on Social Action, recorded in the summer 2014. For more about the work of the Ecodharma Center, check out www.ecodharma.com. Here's Guhyapati. The tragic, ever-smoldering legacy of Palestine and Israel burst into flames again this summer. And simultaneously, the clock ticks on parts per million atmospheric CO2. And for many of us, our relationship to all that is as onlookers, perversely well-informed onlookers, detailed maps of missile strike locations, live feed video from the field, and all that analysis, all that context, all that historical background. It's one of the ironies of the late capitalist experience in Western Europe at least, that communication technologies have brought the images and stories of world events into our lives in ever more retina screen TM detail in proportion to a growing sense of helplessness. In his paper Capitalist Realism, Mark Fisher describes this experience with the phrase reflexive impotence. He notes that we are all too well informed about the failings and irrationalities of our times. We're deeply conscious of them, and self-conscious of our complicity. And yet, ways to meaningfully influence what's going on seem elusive. We're left accepting this is probably how it's bound to be. We resign ourselves, perhaps with some discomfort, to our part in it all, as onlookers from the penumbra of a reflexive impotence. Fisher wrote in 2009, For most people under 20 in Europe and North America, the lack of alternatives to capitalism is no longer even an issue. Capitalism seamlessly occupies the horizon of the thinkable. He echoes Frederick Jameson's phrase, It's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Thatcher first articulated the neoliberal hegemony of the imagination, coining the famous acronym for the policies she pursued, TINA, there is no alternative. For years, both left and right have been mesmerized by that claim, and the popular imagination equally cowed to it. But things change. Today it's hard not to see the neoliberal claim that a global free market is the end point towards which human history is being rationally pursued as anything but a bruising joke. Since Fukuyama declared the end of history with the fall of the Berlin Wall, rather than the steady spread of the free market bringing rationalist enlightenment to all, we've actually seen the more ancient patterns of history shaped by ethnic, territorial and religious conflicts tragically reasserting themselves, spoiling the enlightened pattern history was supposed to take. Other things are changing too. Fisher's paper certainly caught the zeitgeist around the turn of the millennium, but since then much has happened. Recent research in Spain now shows a significant resurgence of concern for community and social engagement amongst younger people. This younger generation of Catalans, Basques and Spaniards are disillusioned of the promises of late capitalism, 
turning their attention from the lures of consumerism and fables of economic stability grounded in individualistic accumulation. They're reinvigorating older traditions of mutual aid and community solidarity, relocalizing economies and reshaping them to serve human needs rather than profits. Amongst these developments, the Emma Kinzer movement has spawned a dynamic array of social initiatives, including a direct democracy party that, barely four months in existence, recently won 8% of the national European election vote. Many are lifting their heads up to look beyond the capitalism that Fisher argued seamlessly occupies the horizon of the thinkable. Much of that traces back to the economic crash of 2008. That crisis, and especially the public bailouts it necessitated, bankrupted the claims of neoliberalism. Although it remains unclear what the material fallout will be, one thing is clear. An unrestrained market, aggressive deregulation of the financial sector, and the promise of growing economic security are now a deeply devalued currency. The 2008 crash sounded a wake-up call. Even the architects of deregulation were, at least for a moment, awoken from their dream. The former chair of the Federal Reserve and champion of deregulation, Alan Greenspan, admitted that the crash had exposed a flaw in his model of how the world worked. He went on, Those of us who have looked to the self-interest of lending institutions to protect shareholders' equity myself especially, are in a state of shocked disbelief. I made a mistake, he says, in presuming that the self-interest of banks and others was such that they were best capable of protecting their own shareholders. It was a mistake that would have consequences in lives far beyond those of the shareholders. What's at stake is the core belief that its rational self-interest as Greenspan names it, which gives rise to healthy economic and social relations. Instead, many are recognising that while self-interested motivation is surely a factor, this needs to be balanced by collective and altruistic concerns, by values that support us to go for the good of the whole. Discontent with the greed integral to the old economic model informs the shape of the reinvigorated social movements. As the irrationalities of the system become more exposed, today it might be better to reframe Thatcher's Tina as Tina O. This is not an option. This is what the recent mobilisation of young Spaniards expresses. It's clear that a socio-economic system rooted in self-interest won't enable us all to be winners. Most, in fact, including the biosphere, will be losers. And the problem is not only that the system is economically precarious, unjust and ecologically destructive. Over-prioritisation of material wealth devalues richer sources of well-being. The assessment of human nature as primarily self-interested undermines community and the meaning we gain from a sense of collective purpose. Sangha, or spiritual community, is at the heart of Buddhism. Recognising that community is crucial to human flourishing, Sangha offers a model of human connection that's not based merely on personal utility or pleasure. Healthy social relations certainly require us to attend to basic material needs, 
but strong community and social relations need to be grounded in more than utility. It's not just a matter of clubbing together in the struggle to further mutual self-interest. Buddhism suggests that our personal flourishing is tied up with our acting for the benefit of others. And rather than this being presented as self-sacrificial, it acknowledges that our well-being, our contentment, even our joy, grow through our actions for the benefit of others. The good life includes the experience of meaningful connection, a shared life, the experience of solidarity and care that are integral to healthy community. Sangha is association with others grounded in a shared commitment to value human potential and to support each other to bring forth our capacity for compassion and wisdom as the basis for a truly satisfying life. This emphasis underscores the fact that we cannot realise our human potential alone. The development of our potential to live well is inextricably bound up with others, our connections and our friendships. The fabric of Sangha is woven out of the connections of Kalyana Mitrata, or spiritual friendship. In an often cited passage from the Pali Canon, the Buddha's attendant Ananda exclaims to the Buddha, How wonderful, Lord! Kalyanamitrata, spiritual friendship, is half of the spiritual life. Say not so, Ananda, replies the Buddha. Kalyanamitrata is the whole of the spiritual life. These social relationships are not a side issue or mere context in which to pursue self-interest. They are central to who we are and what we might become. This view of the meaning of human relationships as the support for each other's development and the recognition that contributing to each other's development is integral to our own flourishing provides more than a basis for the spiritual life. It radically challenges the basic assumptions of the primacy of individualism underpinning recent political and economic development. It asserts that not only do we flourish better together, but that it is only together that we really do flourish. Alice Walker claimed, Resistance is the secret of joy. She was not talking about simply struggling in arbitrary opposition, but pointing to the vitality and fulfilment that arise when we act in solidarity with others and resist the forces which seek to undermine solidarity. The Dharma also suggests this is true. A life lived out of solidarity with others, a life lived honouring connection, is the secret of joy. The socially atomising force of the neoliberal project has been well documented. It has depopulated the territory of community and collaborative work, that terrain which lies between individual agency and the power of the state and transnational entities. The depopulation of the terrain of collective social action is the primary cause of the sense of reflexive impotence Fisher identified. In relative isolation, it might be true that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. But when we come together in the spirit of Sangha, when we collaborate to build alternatives based on the values of supporting each other's development, 
We no longer need to imagine the end of capitalism. In fact, we can find ourselves already embodying a vision beyond the horizon of the late capitalist imagination. This reassertion of the values of mutual aid, solidarity and collaborative social effort rooted in the spirit of Kalyanamitrata frees us from isolation and it's an important step towards reclaiming a newly clear and reflexive social potency. <laughs>